Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, Eric Balkunas. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. And, you know, we're going to spend a good amount of this program talking about uh, Bitcoin ETFs. So the form that they might take, um, you know, the likelihood of them passing and when, and how that's going to ultimately impact uh, Bitcoin and some market structure questions. But, you know, I, I didn't mention this to you before, but you actually probably have hosted uh, a while ago, you did an Invest Like the Best episode, which is maybe one of my favorite podcasts of all time. I've listened to it six or seven times uh, on ETFs by 2017, 2018 yeah. timeframe. Yeah. You remember that uh, one? It's funny. Um, after I did that, at the time, I don't know how many followers I had. I must have had like 2,000 or something. But my follower count increased by like four or 500, which percentage-wise is a huge change. Used to getting one or two followers a week, you get 400. You're like, whoa. So A, that's a credit to Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who's an amazing interviewer and has a great distribution. Um, but I thought he got the best out of me. I, I remember the way he does the interview, you, he, he's just really, he's good at it. And um, I'm, I'm glad you thought that. I Hopefully I didn't. I remember going on there going, that was like my, one of my bigger interviews up to date for me. And I was like, hoping I didn't screw anything up, but it sounds like it did okay. Um, so I'm glad you appreciate it, but that was a real honor to, to do that one. Maybe we can actually just start from just, if I could ask you to summarize a little bit, sort of the state of, because there's been so much focus on this Bitcoin ETF that before we even get to why is this such a big deal and what is the impact going to be, could you just give us an overview of the structure of ETFs, how they differ from mutual funds, and then we can take it from there. Sure. So uh, an ETF is a mutual fund with benefits. It's under the same regulations as a mutual fund, largely. Um, and so basically, if you have a mutual fund, uh, it's a pool of assets. The benefits of a mutual fund are diversification. So like if you're planning for retirement, a mutual fund is great because you don't know which the next big stock is going to be and you don't know which one the next one's going to like blow up. So if you diversify and you own like the S&P 500, you're good. Because if one stock has, you know, goes down to zero, you, you barely feel it. Now, you don't feel the complete surge of a stock that goes to the moon either. But most people are happy to make that trade-off and just slowly take the net positive from the market. And you, you sort of win in the end based on how stocks have an intrinsic value. So diversification is popular. Mutual funds have been popular. All ETFs did was say, hey, let's take this concept and let's let it trade like a stock. So you take a mutual fund and you put it on the exchange so it trades. There's a couple other little side benefits. For example, ETFs tend to track indexes and they tend to be very cheap. Um, so they're very cheap. They're intraday liquidity. And then the way they new shares are created called the creation redemption process is such that you rarely get a capital gains distribution which you get a lot in mutual funds. And I won't go into that fully because I think it would bore people, but the tax efficiency, like they're just better for taxes. So when you, and they're just easy to sort of like plug in easy. It's like, um, you know, portfolio is like a pie, a pie chart. I get a little tech, get a little S&P, get a little international, and you can just sort of play with the knobs and ETFs fit perfectly in that 
They work well in the digital world. They, they're on every brokerage account. And so they've also just made everything very convenient. They track not only things mutual funds track, but they've gotten into some interesting areas like gold. Obviously, Bitcoin's one coming up. Um, you can get ETFs that like rate covered calls, other great call options for you. So right. they've really just expanded into all kinds of areas. And so you just click a button and then you own this, this asset class, the sector, uh, a trade. Some ETFs go long this, short this. And this one ticker, again, cheap, tax like in, uh, have a good taxation that's pretty much like a stock. It's favorable, whereas mutual fund taxation is not favorable. And you can put them all in your portfolio, very convenient. You know, most people today do not have the time to analyze all 4,000 stocks in the US. It would take forever. And even people who do miss stuff. And you could also argue, is there any way to get an edge when there's 50 analysts covering Amazon? So a lot of people are like, instead of being looking for the edge in stocks, I'll look for the edge in asset allocation. So I'm going to try to find my alpha by going long China when I think China is ready for a long run or going long semiconductors. So it's more like being active from the top down and ETFs allow that. So ETFs are good for just like buy and hold passive long term or to do this sort of active strategy where you move them around. So again, they, they're just a, they're a vehicle for the 21st century. I compare them to the MP3. Uh, the MP3 completely blew up CD compact discs and vinyl and tapes, which I grew up with, which yeah. were painful. Um, you, you, they weren't as convenient. They, and I spent way more money on music. Now with digital, Spotify, however you get your music, it's, it's probably, if you're as old as I am, way cheaper, like a, a tenth cheaper, easier to format, and you have more choice in how you do it. And you don't have to listen through like some garbage songs because CDs would have like 16 songs force bundling when you eight sucked. Um, now you can really just get what you want quicker for cheaper. And so I find ETFs and digital music to be very similar versus mutual funds or closed end funds, which to me would be more like a tape cassette and compact discs. Hey everyone, we will be right back to the interview with Eric in a second. But before we get back, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to this uh, institutional conference that we're hosting in London, March 18th to the 20th called DAS London. It is the largest institutionally focused crypto conference in the world. Eric is going to be there. So if you're enjoying this interview with him about the Bitcoin ETF, he's going to be live with us in person with a bunch of the other big issuers such as BlackRock, Franklin Templeton, etc. Also, prices are going up from 499 pounds to 699 pounds. So don't wait. Use code MARGIN20. Those prices are going up in January. So make sure that you get them before. All right, back to the show. I want to get a sense of a couple of things of one, you know, what makes for a successful ETF? Like what are the different components? Because I would imagine there are probably a lot of issuers that were pursuing like the sort of canonical, the S&P sort of ETF. Why did one end up winning? Um, and then I want to get a sense of like who ultimately sort of benefits and makes money in this ecosystem. Like who are the players? Because Ultimately, you know, we're going to kind of ask the question of why did BlackRock decide to file for a Bitcoin ETF this year? So I want to set up the dynamics uh, for folks who might not be as in the weeds as you are. What makes a successful ETF? Who are the different players and then how distribution works? Half of ETF assets are really in products that charge less than 0.10%, or we call it 10 basis points. So they're basically free. So most of the, the money is in just free exposure, generally to vanilla stuff the S&P 500, um, the aggregate bond index. That would be your classic 60-40 portfolio. 
Most people, their main account, their main retirement in America is a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And maybe their stocks are in the total market or an S&P 500, the bonds in an aggregate index. Maybe they decorate a little on the outside and that's that. And the, the flows and the assets reflect that. So those are the real winners. And those flows, which I would call core flows, they are very sensitive to fees. So when BlackRock and Vanguard are in a fee war with the S&P 500, like they were once at like seven basis points and then BlackRock went to five and the flows actually follow BlackRock. Then Vanguard went to three, the flows follow Vanguard. Now they're both at three, now they equal flows. So when you get to core stuff, that's like a commodity and like very, you know, there's not much difference. They both track right. the S&P. You tend to go to cheaper. It's like, you know, when you pick an airline to go, you know, if you could fly to Denver, you're going to go with the cheaper one. You don't really give a shit which airline it is. So, excuse my French. Um, being at home, I think I dropped Chris Rosenworth in the office. This one case for going in the office. That's fine. This is HBO, baby. You say whatever you want. Okay. Anyway, um, so that's where half the assets are. The other half are in more like, you know, uh, tactical things like, um, you know, a junk bond ETF. Not everybody's going to buy that, but there's certain people who want to decorate with the junk bond ETF. You find that there's a, a section of the ETF world for exotic stuff like 3X, Q, uh, NASDAQ 100, you know, TQQQ and SQQQ are very popular products. They have like $20 billion and leverage ETFs are part of that. I call those the rated R district where you're getting like a lot of like exotic exposures. People like a little hot sauce, you know, and there's definitely some of those in there and they do fine. They charge a little more though. You can make more money over there because people are less price sensitive. Um, And then you've got things like sector ETFs and industry ETFs and thematic ETFs. Again, all these are going to have less assets because they make up less of the portfolio. So generally, ETF flows and assets are very much mirror of like how a portfolio would look. And I know in like the Bitcoin world, portfolios may not look traditional. So I'm speaking more from like someone maybe who is a little older, let's say 40 and above, and even like 50 or 60 above who uses an advisor. That's where all the money is though. Like if you're young, you, you are, you know, and I was, you know, I'm Gen X. At one point I had no money. I was trying to get something going. It probably took me 20 years till I had like decent savings in retirement. So when you start out, you don't really have anything. So like most of the money that we're talking about, we cover in ETFs are via advisors and wealth managers. And that all that is really like older investors. I would say 40 and above. Yeah. Um, at some point, the younger people will be the ones with all the money. I get that. But right now, boomers, Gen X have a majority of the money in the stock market. And that's where all the money is in ETFs too. But I, I you know, again, there's so much experimentation and, and things that you don't think will become a hit, become a hit. Um, and so there is definitely innovation and some products that are designed differently. I, I would call crypto and Bitcoin ETFs when they launch uh, something akin to hot sauce. You would not use them in your core if you're an advisor or wealth manager, but you may put 1% in there. You know, there's definitely a bucket of a portfolio to just cure your FOMO because a lot of people might invest in, in crypto a, a little bit just so they don't hate themselves in 10 years in case it goes to a million dollars or whatever. So hearing FOMO is a, there's definitely a real lane there for that. Uh, again, I call it hot sauce, but I don't really think anybody in that 40 above class would put everything in a Bitcoin ETF. I think that would be um, a satellite position. And so most of the assets would be in the core and a little bit on the edges. So I guess, I don't know if that answers your question. I, there might've been a second question at the end, but I forget it. 
Please. The last question that I have for you, and the reason I'm asking is because it's going to set up for, I want folks to get a, an understanding of how financial products ultimately get distributed and, and a, that sort of ecosystem. I mean, like there, Matt Levine has this really great analogy of a brokerage being an investment shop. Um, and there's a whole, but there's this whole sort of ecosystem of people who distribute and sell financial products. Um, so I, I'd love to get a sense of, you know, how distribution and whatever distribution strategy exists, like how does that play into the role of what makes, what ultimately makes a successful ETF? Yeah, distribution is very important, but distribution and mutual funds is more important. Like mutual funds actually offer kickbacks to brokers to put people in them. And that's why, uh, a big part of what you have to understand is is um, ETFs don't give any kickbacks. Ah, I didn't it's realize more that. of a meritocracy industry. That's why I call it the terror dome because once you go from the mutual fund industry to the ETF world, you're like, wow, this is like real capitalism. Whereas mutual funds have to be called loads and distribution fees where they literally pay to get good shelf space or to just literally pay off a broker to put like grandma in this mutual fund, even if they think it sucks. I'm so surprised that that's allowed. I can't believe that. It shouldn't have been legal ever, but it's just, yeah. it, I don't know. It's, um, that said, in the US, many brokers had a mixed feelings about this. They didn't like being, you know, putting their clients in crap funds. So over the years, there's been this migration from a commission based broker to a fiduciary advisor. And the fiduciary advisor gets paid as a percentage of your assets. So if you have, your parents or whatever have a wealth manager, um, they would get like 1% or 70 basis points of your all your parents' money. Well, once they're getting paid as part of the pie that your parents have, they're now looking after your stuff because it comes out of their pocket now. So of course, they're going to go for the cheaper products. And they know cheaper products are going to outperform the more expensive one in the end. All the data shows this. Costs are probably the most biggest impactful thing in long-term returns. So the cheaper the fund is, the more you get to keep your money long-term and the more you compound your own money as opposed to compounding for the asset manager. So the advisors pick GPTF. So once that shift happened with the brokerage industry, ETFs really took off. Um, because ETFs, again, they, they don't pay anybody. There's no... And so, but distribution still matters. So if you have a popular ETF, like say you're Kathy Wood, you had the ARC, popular ETF ARC, which holds like innovative stocks, you get out there, you start getting some returns. People are like, oh, that's interesting. And they start buying it. Then once you get some assets, you can start to pitch these like wirehouses, which are like gigantic food stores of funds. Like Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, like they have these huge advisory networks all over America. And all these people look to the home office for like what ETFs to use. So if you can get into the home offices like um, OK list, you're in tall cotton. I mean, you basically, it's like getting your salad dressing in Whole Foods. You are basically going to be, um, you know, looked at by millions of people. So that's the ultimate distribution is to get on those platforms. Um, but outside of that, a lot of it's just hustling, you know, uh, hustle points, I call it. You got to get out there, do your stuff. I mean, some managers like JP Morgan, they have their own advisors, so they can kind of push their own product a little bit. but there's really not too much conflict of interest going on. A lot of ETF assets just have to be earned the hard way by convincing the customer it's a good deal. And so it is a hard industry, but it's more legitimate industry versus what I just described earlier. So that's why while anybody can make it, it is hard to make it. And that's why the fighting for the core of the portfolio is so brutal because these are picky investors 
who know that costs are important. And so when it comes to the core, they're just going to like basically pick the cheapest ETFs. That's why you have such a race for the Bitcoin ETF because Vanguard isn't going to launch one and they're, you're going to be able to charge a little more, at least at first. So all these firms smell some revenue potential here, but they also see themselves as disintermediating a little bit and offer lowering fees too. So I think it could be a win-win. This is a rare case where compared to some of the fees I see on like Coinbase and stuff, I think an ETF will be um, a good deal because the trading fees will be like one, one basis point. The expense ratio is probably between 40 and 70 basis points uh, to start. I think eight arcs 80. So we'll say 40 to 80. Um, and then there'll be, there'll be a cost war over several years. But at first, there's going to be more than you can make than if you tried to compete with Vanguard. For an S&P 500 ETF, they charge three basis points. What are you going to be like? So even if you go lower than Vanguard, you still have to get over the fact that like Vanguard has a big brand name. So when the core advisors like Vanguard and BlackRock, for their core, they're cheap brand names. You can't get fired for them. So again, all this is very powerful stuff. So in the Bitcoin race, it's a little more of a new, new frontier, a white space. So there is this general rush to see who can stake their claim and carve out a little niche of this higher revenue generating area. Yeah. All right. That's really helpful. I didn't understand that, that, that there's some of these issuers see like the opportunity for more margin. That's really good insight. Oh, 100%. I mean, the gold ETF, GLD, which launched 20 years ago and has been the subject of a lot of price competition, still to this day is the third highest generating ETF of all 3,000. At wow. 40 basis points only. So they know if they can just get, if they can be that one, you know, again, once you go down the list, you know, IAU is the second one, but that's probably ranks 300th. And then the third gold ETF probably ranks like 1,000th. So that's why this is so fascinating because there can only be one real gigantic winner. Number, the, number two will be successful. And then there'll be a couple in the middle class and then there'll be many that fail. Okay, that was great. You know, I actually owned IAU back in the day, uh, back in the day, like four or five years ago. I don't know why my buddy was just like, this one is the better gold ETF and I ended up getting IAU. They're right, because why pay 40 when that IAU was 25? Same, does the same exact thing, but that's what makes GLD so remarkable because it got all the liquidity. This is the thing. Once the one ETF gets most of liquidity, like GLD try, probably trades two, $3 billion a day. IAU probably trades 300 million, right? So it trades 10 times. Once you get that liquidity, it's so hard for other ETFs to steal it. And so the one that gets liquidity will always be used by the institutional investors, the big fish. They love liquidity. And so once you are that one, you are set for life. You have pricing power. You don't need to lower your fees. The rest of the gold people have to fight a more traditional war of like lowering fees, doing something special. But GLD is just set for life. And people want to be that set for life one in the Bitcoin race. Mm. And there's- All right, so let's talk about, you know, who some of these prospective issuers are and like who ultimately has a chance at winning here. You know, we were talking a little bit before we got on. And I think what surprised, you know, everyone this year, and maybe even yourself, is BlackRock deciding to file for a Bitcoin ETF. This has been such a long time in the making. I think the, the Winklevoss twins were the first one to, uh, to try to file for an ETF almost 10 years ago at this point. And it's been pretty roundly roundly shut down for a whole number of reasons. But I mean, BlackRock, it's hard to get more official than that. I think they're the largest asset manager in the world. I mean, 
you know, talk to me about how you felt when you saw that uh, that iShares ETF implica- uh, application. Uh, shocked. I, in fact, I remember where I was exactly. I was getting ready to go on vacation to Cape May, New Jersey, like the next week. And I remember seeing the Coindesk article and, and it said, BlackRock rumored to file ETF. And I tweeted out, and I'm glad I didn't just shoot it down. But in, in my mind, I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Um, they got some fake news. But I'm glad I give them, because I know they were the people who could have uncovered FTX. And so I'm glad I lodged in my mind that the crypto trade publications had some legit journalism going on. So I gave them some benefit of the doubt and I said, this can't be true, can it? That was my tweet. And that was my reaction. I'm glad I had to can it because it turned out like three hours later, boom, the filing comes in. And I'm like, holy moly. So again, I didn't think BlackRock was even looking at this. And because over the last 10 years, we've seen filings come in, but they're always from these like, We'll call them the mid-tier issuers. Like there's the top five, and then there's like Fanec, Global X, um, Arc. Like th- these are all legitimate issuers, but they're not in the top five, and especially not the top three, especially not the number one. So BlackRock filing is just like mind blowing, and they have so much going on. You just think like, and then Larry Fink, I'm, you know, we all remember him like kind of trashing crypto like five years ago. So it made no sense to me. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh my god. So James and I quickly huddled and our odds of approval went from 1% to 50 instantly. Wow. Because wow. it was like, what does BlackRock know? This makes no sense. If any other issue file besides BlackRock, Vanguard, or maybe State Street, we're just not moving our odds. But BlackRock in particular, especially because you got to remember, in 20, March 2020, during the COVID sell-off, the Fed moved in to help the markets by providing liquidity. What did they do? They bought fixed income ETFs to give the bond market liquidity. And they BlackRock basically did that program for them. So, yeah. you know, you have, a, uh, some people call BlackRock the fourth branch of government. So like, this is a big deal. This company is, up. I can't overstate it really, how crucial they are. Largest asset manager in the planet. So anyway, they went to 50% and then we started to dig through why and and then Larry Fink goes on Fox News or Fox Business maybe within like a week of that. And he starts calling Bitcoin like, you know, digital gold and it's the new thing. And I'm like, oh my God. So we stuck at 50 and we thought, okay. And then we thought he clearly is into this. And I we then looked at their annual report and we realized he had a couple things in there that he was looking to do. Uh that I thought were revenue generators. So I think BlackRock largely sees a revenue opportunity, but I also think they see a revenue opportunity, but a disintermediating opportunity. Like BlackRock is has a little vanguard in them. They do like to go in and disrupt. And I think they see that uh, the crypto trades, the crypto exchanges, um, A, are, are expensive, and B, after FTX, can you trust them? You know, And that was something they saw probably. They're like, hey, we can make it safer and cheaper. So they saw we can be the good guys and make good money while we do it. And I, I, that's what they saw. I remember they had pushed ESG for like four years and like it, it died because uh, oil stocks went nuts in 2020. And like, so all ESG ETFs are like underweight oil stocks and they all underperformed and like the bloom went off the rose and, and now they're seeing outflows and ESG became a political football. So BlackRock kind of had a loser with ESG. And so I think they see something knew they can sort of like rally around in terms of an ETF revenue generator because 
you have to remember BlackRock is a publicly traded company. They have a stock. They have shareholders they're trying to please. And so this all factors in, I'm sure. Uh, they may not say that, but it has to be part of their calculus. But, you know, um, they're in business. This is, and they see an opportunity. So nothing wrong with that. So anyway, they launched and then other people followed suit because they did. And then we started looking at the Grayscale case and we were like, wait, if Grayscale wins, this could really, maybe BlackRock, this is like a call option. In case Grayscale wins, BlackRock will be right there. So then we had all these theories on like BlackRock being there. So the SEC could like hand them the keys and not Grayscale. And anyway, long story short, Grayscale won their case and our odds went to 90, um, you know, by, by the first final deadline, which was January 10th, which is coming up. And we're still there. And so, but to your point, BlackRock was a shocker. And then the Grayscale winning, we only had a 40% chance. So even that was a bit of a shocker, although 40% was pretty reasonable. And they won. And so I think those two things really got us on this trajectory up to 90%. And then the bigger, the, the final thing that was huge was seeing and hearing back channel that the SEC was engaging, you know, saying, here's our comments on your prospectus. Because up until then, and your 10 years, the Winklevoss twins started it. Every time we had these cycles, it would be like 10 filings and then radio silence, delay, radio silence, delay, and then radio silence, denial. This time we heard there's no radio silence. They were talking to the issuers, giving them comments. Then you saw the prospectus coming in, updated, updated. That was major. And that justified our 90%, we thought, because you just aren't, that's normal. And so normal was a break from the pattern. The radio silence denial thing is abnormal. So it was a pattern of abnormalcy for 10 years. And now we have normalcy. That's a good sign. So that's sort of where we are now. And there's obviously some other little nuances we can get into, but, um, we feel like now we're feeling pretty good that we stuck our neck out there. We were a little early and we were a little optimistic versus our peers and versus some other people. But I, you know, we held the line and it looks like it's pretty good chance that they will be approved January by January 10th. Oh, is your base case basically that the iShares ETF ends up sucking up a bunch of the assets and then there's kind of a second and third and then it's kind of everyone else and most of them either kind of are sort of irrelevant and fail? Or what, what's kind of the base case for what, let's just say an ETF does end up getting approved in January. How does the whole uh, landscape look, let's say three years from now? Good question. Um, you know, we're trying to handicap this race and look at it. It's hard not to give BlackRock, you know, the best odds. Uh, if, if I was Vegas and I had to make a line on this, like it was the Kentucky Derby, I, I'm trying to use it, by the way, I'm, I was, I beta tested the phrase Kentucky Derby but everyone trashed it. So I'm looking for a new one. Some people have, someone said I should call it the bit surrection because it's happening right around January 6th. Anyway, some people like that one, but um, I think a good name for this, but I, I like the concept of a derby because they are launching at the same time. If you have a derby and you're handicapping the race and you're, and you have to be the house, I got to get BlackRock the favor because they're BlackRock. They have massive distribution. Advisors trust them and love them. But then you've got people like ARK and 21 Shares. 21 Shares is huge in Europe. Kathy yeah. Wood is known in the crypto world. They, they, I would call those a local issuer. They're very known in the community. But are, is a community going to buy this? Or is this mainly going to be for advisors? If so, you might favor a BlackRock or a Fidelity. But in terms of the community, or will advisors look for somebody that's more local, like a VanEck or an ARK, who really truly loves crypto. They've been in it a while. I don't know. Um, or does some, you know, is there some kind of a wild card here? I know 
One thing that could help Arc is they have a bunch of GPTC. Could they sell out of that, move that cash into Arc, and Arc would have a little head start? Because the first couple of weeks are crucial. If if one of them looks like it's gathering steam, even if that money comes from internal or somewhere else, or you set it up ahead of time, it doesn't matter. It still shows up at volume and assets. If one of them looks and has the appearance of being the winner, that speaks, that's a major marketing help. Because the appearance of having assets, even if it's fake assets, like you put your own money in there, doesn't matter. It looked winnerish. So if one one could make the greatest case on earth, but if it doesn't have assets or volume, it's gonna it's gonna have like stank on it. And it's like a party. An advisor's gonna look at it and go, I you know, I just don't want to be the only person at that party. And we, we struggle with this because in other categories, the first ETF launch typically still has the most volume. But like over the years, so many better versions have come out. And we're trying to explain to people sometimes that, hey, try to get out of the rut of just going to the most traded one. Because you there's all these new versions. It's like using the iPhone 1 still. And But that's just the way people operate as ETF users. They just tend to go to ones that have the money and the volume. I feel in the advisor world, you feel some protection. It's like, hey, I, I'm in the biggest one. How could you possibly get mad at me versus this thing you never heard of? So I do think that it is very important to that get out early with some assets and mojo. Again, um, so I put those at kind of my Invesco is also a big issuer. Uh, and they have Galaxy working with them. Uh, like I said, they're all launching at the same time. So this is going to be a marketing war, I think, like we've never seen. Um, I just saw Google uh, loosen the rules on advertising on Google. Um, because of this. So they said that now they had some kind of a ban. Now they're loosening it. And if you were a, if you are a uh, structured fund or something, you are allowed to advertise that. I'm sure that's because BlackRock and others called them and said, we're ready to spend millions on advertising on Google. That's my guess. They're- Man, that is fascinating. And what he, so here's what makes this like such a difficult, that's what, what I wanted to go next was like GBTC as such a curveball because I, I don't know how to I don't know how to handicap this because here here's so first of all GBTC for folks who don't know that is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust it's a close end uh, sort of product which has how, how, it's got some thirty odd billion still in there in assets I think it's and 20. twenty but okay so you're still starting from you have a massive head start right um, the branding is a little bit of an interesting question the parent company of Grayscale uh, DCG has had some pretty probably deserve bad press recently. Genesis, which was one of their five sister companies, ended up going bankrupt. I think there's actually been a criminal complaint filed by the New York Attorney General for uh, for what's going on there. So not super great. That said, GBTC still did win its big court battle against the SEC. Um, and so there's going to be this question. And But there was, a, there was a comment from Gary Gensler, I think a couple months ago, about, hey, it's not just about the asset, it's about the issuer. So... Hey, I guess my, my question to you is, one, do you think GBTC is going to successfully convert from their close-end trust into the ETF? And if so, how do you weight that in this race? Because one, yes. they're kind of fighting a little bit of an issue of public perception, but also they're starting from with $20 billion right out of the gate, which even for BlackRock is nothing to sniff at. So, I mean, where does that all fit in here? That's kind of an interesting yeah. little curveball. They are an unknown. Um, they are a subplot that's been hard to read. I get good information. Um, from my sources. Uh, Grayscale has been a little harder for them to read because the, the staff isn't talking to another issuer about Grayscale. So it's, 
I get more information about like what the staff's interested in in terms of like filings and stuff. But in terms of Grayscale, it's hard to get this. And Grayscale doesn't really say anything. So um, my here's my feeling, my, my gut feeling. And James and I have a bet. We bet sushi lunch on this. I think Grayscale will probably have to wait till over a month after the other ones launch to mm. convert. Um, James thinks sooner. So, you know, James and I are tight on most of this. We, we differ here a little. And that's not against Grayscale. Not, I, I, they're great people there. I, I get it. Uh, I'm just trying to um, keep it real. That's just what I think. I, and because and if you're the SEC and you can tell they're very into having a fair competition, they do not want to pick a winner here. If you have Grayscale in that, that they're going to come over with a bunch of assets and embedded liquidity. So like I said, assets and liquidity are marketing. So it's like you're letting somebody come over with like all this marketing mojo because of that. And it would be an unfair race. I think that's how the SEC sees it. Or maybe they have a little revenge in their hearts. Hey, you sued us. You embarrassed us. We didn't want to approve these. You're making us do it. Uh, let's find some kind of parking ticket that you owe. And we're going to use that to delay you. I don't know. Um, th- these are things that James thinks I'm wrong on. And um, so I say that. But w- again, every time I have a difference of opinion with somebody. I'd like to throw a lunch bet to see if they really feel this or they're just playing devil's advocates. Well, James really feels they'll launch with everybody else. So we have a, we have a lunch bet uh, on it. And, and so there you go. So I throw that out because if you're, if you had James on, he would say the inverse of what I just said, that Eric thinks this and I think this. So, um, but, um, there hasn't been anything from Grayscale that I've seen that indicates like, like some kind of optimism that it's happening. Uh, and we're getting pretty close. So um, they're also a little bit of an outlier, whereas the other issuers have a more traditional. They filed, they update the filings, they update it again, they meet with the trading, you know, it's all very standard. So you can kind of like do a little more predictive work with them. Grayscale is an unusual case because they had it filed, they sued, they're trying to convert, not just launch a new fund. Um, so that's my, that's my read on... On grayscale, but certainly they make it also a fascinating study because what, how will this work? And what will the people do? Like if they're a month behind the rest, will people exit grayscale and mass and move over? Because the new ones will charge way less than 2%. I'll tell you that. Even ARC's 80. And I think that's going to be on the higher side. So you're already looking at the, the one the one fee we know so far is ARC's at 80 and the rest will probably be lower. So you're going to see a bunch of people probably probably leaving, I guess, uh, you know, we'll have to see because they're sitting on some tax, like they, they're going to owe taxes if they sell. So, you know, I will, again, all this is unknown. So um, that's my take. Yeah, I, so I've got, a, I've got a question for you. Like, let's, let's try to game out different situations here. And by the way, I just wanted to correct, because uh, I don't want to be getting information wrong here, but the, the action, so it was the New York billion. Attorney General. Okay, 26 billion. And it was the New York Attorney General that to DCG. So I'm not sure what the corporate structure looks like in between Grayscale and DCG. And maybe this ultimately isn't going to be an issue for them. And I, I know the folks at, at both Grayscale and DCG as well and, and like them. So I, you know, no, no shade. I just wanted to, it's, but it is relevant, I think, for this, for this ETF race. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. 
I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Okay, let, let me, let me um, shift the conversation here a little bit. And I want to get your sense on impact here. So look, there's a couple ways that people are viewing this. And I'm sure you've probably seen this. You're relatively active on FinTwit. But if I had to sort of be pretty reductive and, and describe both sides of the opinion of what the impact of this is going to be is, you've seen these tweets about, this is what the price of gold looked like pre and post ETF, right? They like to show, oh, this is what gold was kind of just chopping, meandering sideways. ETF, boom, you know, up and to the right, sort of exponential chart. Then, honestly, what's been uh, kind of the, the other perspective of this is this is going to be a sell the rumor, buy the news, uh, or, or buy the rumor, sell the news. Um, and, and I would actually say this is anecdotal, but I think within sort of crypto circles that I travel in, the smart, I think the consensus on the smart money is that this is going to be a buy the rumor, sell the news event. And the volume on day one is going to ultimately disappoint probably. And, you know, we've been waiting for this for so long. It's really hyped. We're already seeing a lot of the price appreciation right now. And ultimately, this will be cool and good over the long term, but it's not going to be ultimately have a large impact from from day one. I have my own opinion on this, but where do you ultimately fall? Yeah, I'm looking at the price of stock gold right now. It looks like there was a little bit of a run up before the ETF, the gold was launched. But yeah, it really went up after it launched. And so we didn't have the same run-up before in GLD. So there was room to run, I think. Um, I do agree with you if I had to pick. We don't give investment advice. And right. honestly, yes. I don't know. Uh, I am a true... I'm one of these people who just generally doesn't admits I don't know the future. So when Bitto launched, it was a sell-the-news event, for sure. That, in fact, Bitcoin has never recovered from the day Bitto launched. That was with 69000 so um, we're still not we're still not back to that page. So um, yeah, I would be very careful trading around this uh, for sure. Um, and I I tell people like sometimes we'll put a we'll put a uh, put a tweet out with some updated filing and and someone won't understand the, the wonkiness. They'll be like green or red. Just tell me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just like I'm like dude. I'm not playing this game. I don't know. My guess is that the, like you said, the volume will be underwhelming after Bitto. Because remember, Bitto launched in a mania. October 2021 was a mania. It was like Beetle mania, but Bitcoin mania. So that's gone. The thrill, all the mania is gone. And those little retail investors, they're either using Coinbase or they're just once bitten, twice shy. I don't need a crypto anymore. So those those all those minnows that bid on Bitto the first day, I don't think they're in the, in the lake anymore. What's in the lake though underneath is these bigger fish, these advisors, and they're not just they don't rush to the bait. Okay, they're going to swim around it. Look, so the good news is the bigger fish are there. They're hard to catch and they don't bite early. So you're probably going to see a lot less volume and assets early. Again, though, we will see enough to see which ETF gets the mojo, but. It's over time, over a year, two years, three years, that I think we see somewhere 20 to 40 billion uh, yeah. in this category. If wow. you extrapolate the spot Bitcoin ETFs in Canada and you extrapolate them to the size of the US market, you get 70 billion in the US. 
If you extrapolate Europe, you get to 30 billion. So we're kind of in the middle, 45, 50 billion is where we think the US market will be after a couple of years. And then maybe it inches up to 70 billion. That's right where gold is about. And that puts you at 1% of ETF assets. So that's our general estimate. But because advisors are the bigger fish who are going to swim around a little bit and wait to see which one's successful, which one's cheapest. Uh, but once they bite, they're big. So that's the good news. So I think we're going to see incremental big bites from model portfolios and advisors, but they don't, they're, they're not going to rush in the first day like we saw with Bitto. Again, Bitto is like throwing a bait and, and there's just like a million minnows just starving. That's yeah. gone. Okay. I have, I have uh, thought. So first of all, completely agree with the sentiment. It's sort of a fool's errand to call specific market action around this. It's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I actually do want to poke a little bit at the minnows argument. And the only reason I want to poke at that is because I, so I, you know, we founded BlockWorks in, uh, you know, to very tail end of 2017, um, right into kind of this bear market. And I do remember uh, around that period of time, which was coming right off of mania, I heard people say actually the same thing. It was like, People have, you know, had a once in a generation burn on buying this stuff. They're never coming back. And they came back with a vengeance, like 10x what the, the mania was back in 2017. So I sort of feel like people have short memories. And uh, actually, one, one thing that, I, that I've been personally observing, just because I'm a little bit deeper in it right now, is uh, there's a little bit of uh, PTSD, you might call it, from the last 18 months. But maybe, Eric, this isn't, I'm a little bit deeper here, and it's not something you're paying as much attention to. But in 2022, people said Dogecoin was such a, you know, that's never going to happen again. Maybe Bitcoin and Ethereum, but not none of these meme coins. You know what's running the hardest right now? Is a new meme coin called Bonk. Bonk Inu. Yeah, it's up like, you know, 10,000% or something like that. So it's already, history is literally already re repeating itself. Yeah. But I, I do agree with your, your sentiment on the, the advisor. Well, and let's, let's just um, open up that, that a little bit here. Um, in, in my world, again, this is where I go anecdotal. Right. Um, I, I, there was people I knew asking about it. Like those people who, and even my, like my cousin, um, it's actually my cousin's kid. So I don't know if that makes him like second cousin. Um, but anyway, he was into it. He was told that I go to a bar, like a beer garden. Everybody's talking about crypto. Like, I just don't hear that much anymore. That said, retail could come back. It could be there. But again, at, in October, I just, it was a mania and it was largely unvarnished at the time. It yeah. was just all good. Even if people, at, you know, at some point, the price of Bitcoin, though, will create FOMO like it did last time. But I just don't think we're there yet. And, and we, you know, we have also seen it because the Bitcoin mining ETFs to track Bitcoin mining stocks, they've been up well over 100% this year and barely any flows. And usually those would be used by retail. So I'm not saying they won't come around eventually, but um, I've lived through both. And to me, this, this feels a lot less like um, unmet demand sitting there from retail like we did back then. It just doesn't seem like it's on everybody's mind or lips as it was. Um, so, but you know, we'll see, like I said, I don't think none, but I just don't think like 2021 October was, um, it was a special time. Yeah. So I, so the, the folks that honestly I end up talking more to are, are people in, uh, deep in crypto. And actually this, this does remind me of an analog, which is a, a period of time that I feel like I've lived through, which was actually end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And the, the, the parallels are this, if you look at, so 2019, just because 
you know, uh, we were like a bootstrap company and I was building a crypto media and conference company during that period of time, which I can tell you wasn't always super fun, uh, was like, it was depression. It was like tumbleweed, you know, the metaphorical tumbleweed blowing through the industry, like nothing in particular going on. Everyone's just very down. It was, it was, it was really tough. But if you actually look at what Bitcoin price action did that year, I mean, it, it did like a 3x or something. You know, it started the year th- you know, 3,000, ended around 9,000. And that is how I've felt this year. If you look at Bitcoin price action, it is up some 250% this year. But mostly what the sentiment is in the industry, there's a little kind of mini thing going on in Solana right now specifically, but most of the industry is still in that. They're like, yeah, it's probably going to come back. And I know there's the Bitcoin ETF, but you know, I, they're not, no one's allowing themselves to become too optimistic. And but there is this enormous catalyst that's kind of right on the horizon. So that is the, the sort of analog period that I see. And one question I've started to ask on this show a couple of times is like, when is retail going to come back? Because yeah, I totally agree with you. It is not back yet at all. Um, and uh, my, I, I actually created a little list. I can link it in the show notes of like the sort of signs. And I haven't gotten te- texts from relatives is right up there. You know, No one has texted me about this yet. So I mean, it's possible there's some um, retail that just, you know, like, like advisors trust the ETF and they just, they've been used to it. And the ETF, there, there is no post-traumatic stress syndrome from an ETF. There hasn't been it. I always said from the first start, if the SEC would have just approved these damn things, you might not have had an FTX. FTX wouldn't have been able to get so big. The ETF would have stolen a lot of those customers. Um, so in my opinion, the SEC did a disservice to uh, small investors because an ETF is SBF proof. Uh, because yep. the, the, you, you can't ever have some, even if Larry Fink lost his mind and read, went to the Bahamas and did all the, he, he couldn't steal the money. He couldn't mess. It's all very legal and structured and the Bitcoin's held with the custodian and, uh, it's all very by the books. And so, um, maybe some retail notices that advisors definitely notice that they love all that. They know that. Does retail know that? I don't know. Maybe, but maybe if they see an ETF, they'll be like, well, I trust this. I'm not using the exchanges anymore. Um, perhaps we'll see some people do that. Uh, mostly, though, I, I, I agree with you. I, again, I, the price action, if it were to continue to go up through the launch, that could do it too. Because again, at some point, it becomes such a shiny object and we just know retail can't resist. I mean, they just, that's what... But in the ETF world, over and over, we've seen uh, many times where something has this like run up in not only price, but like media attention and narrative. And, you know, then it has the downfall and then it comes back up. We call it the second bite at the apple. Most of the time, you just don't get a good second bite at the apple. You nibble at best. You can never recreate that like first love. You know, it's sort of like, you know, your first love. It, you know, as you roll on, it's never quite the same as that first time. Um, and I feel like that happens a lot here um, in the ETF world. And we've seen it over and over. They never come back as strong as they ever did. So I could be wrong, but that's sort of this uh, sort of vibe and situation I think we're in now. Um, One of the questions that I think is actually relevant is, is retail going to be interested in Bitcoin or something else? And the, the question that I was going to ask you after this is, all right, there's an ETH ETF, an Ether ETF already on the horizon here. And then there will be other sort of Ether-like competitors like uh, Solana or whatever new, ultimately, like L1s end up getting launched. And, you know, my 
my question to you as well is, okay, there's the 1% maybe for the Bitcoin spot ETF. Like how likely is it or how much attention, relative attention are these other um, potential crypto ETFs going to attract, do you think? I think minimal. Um, and, you know, the Ether mm. Futures ETFs launched, they really kind of, um, nobody cared. Um, and I yeah. think the question, we know they don't, people, look, people don't like futures, especially advisors. Like they don't want derivatives. They'd rather have spot. Right. But even the Bitcoin Futures ETF has action. I mean, it still trades like, let me see what the, I mean, the trading volume on it's very good. It will dwindle once the spot launches, but right now it's the only game in town. It trades $300 million a day. It's very good. Um, so nobody really using the Ether Futures ETF. That's probably a bad sign for like the what comes next crowd. You know, would a spot Ether do better? Probably. It would do better in the futures, that's for sure. But how good would it do? I think for most advisors, and again, nor- normal people who are not into this that much, I think Bitcoin's plenty. Yeah. Uh, I think they're largely going to go around Bitcoin. And you do have some pretty big advocates in your world saying, you know, like Sailor, there is no second best. You know, you have people out there, right? Remember that? Yeah. I do I remember that? Yeah. I, I, I do. That's a that's a pretty all time meme. So it is all time. Yeah. yeah. Um so there are people from within your world that are like, you yeah. don't need anything else. And so um but like Matt Hogan, who's someone I trust, who's you know, he's from the ETF world, but is pretty much embedded in crypto now. He thinks Ether is a bigger deal than Bitcoin. Um I don't know, but even with him saying that, I, I know, like, if I'm a, for my regular person, if I'm just sitting there and thinking my own personal account, I'm probably thinking, you know what, honey, just buy a little of this Bitcoin. It, that, it'll move with Ether. They're all the same. It's good enough. It's the one. We don't need to go crazy here. That, that's sort of, I think, how most people are going to play this. You know, I understand the perception of crypto being this one homogenous group of weirdos, but actually the reality is crypto is a very heterogeneous group of weirdos. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of what's happened, something that's very, um, in, in the last, I would say, two years, is yeah. there's kind of crypto and Bitcoin. And there used to be, it used to just be one industry and there was a lot of overlap, but you're probably familiar with this term like Bitcoin maximalism, and it's very popular to say, Hey, uh, Bitcoin is the only thing, and all of these other things are shit coins. Yeah. And this is uh, this is not only a waste of time, but immoral. And it's it's alienated a large portion of the. And I would actually say the crypto industry is much larger today than the Bitcoin industry. And a lot of the innovation is actually happening in crypto and less in in Bitcoin. So I, I'm. And by the way, I know Matt very well. Uh, he's actually an advisor at, at Blockworks. So. Uh, yeah, I actually would. I would also overweight the Ether ETF as well as something not to not to. Yeah. Um, so uh, the intra wars are interesting to me. I see it happen in my timeline. Something I'll tweet something, and then two people will just go at it, and it will take me a while to figure out what's going on. I'm like, oh, okay, this this one really loves Bitcoin and thinks nothing else matters, and this person thinks other things are okay, and I'll start to figure that out. And then sometimes there's an Ether maximalist. I did this one Ether podcast. And I didn't realize it until like halfway through that these are ether only people. Like they're like real in the ether. And then once, then I, I met the XRP army. You, you ever hang with them? Yeah. I've never hung with them, but I'm that very aware of them. Those, that's a special breed. I'm sitting there and I, I, there was a fake filing for an iShares XRP ETF. Oh my God. I remember that too. That's yeah. Crazy. And so I was the one who called BlackRock and said, is this real? They said, no. So I tweeted, this is not as fake news. 
And then the price went down, it went up like 7% and rate down 7%. And they went off on me for like three or four days. And then Reuters in Bloomberg said, BlackRock says this is false. And they said, and then they, they still came at me. And I'm like, well, even these journalists say it like, and then they were like, well, well BlackRock might be lying to you. But the, it was the vitriol and the character assassination. They were like, um, I, the, my metaphor was like, if crypto is like a city that I'm not used to, I took a wrong turn and I got jumped in an alley. That's how the XRP army felt to me. So there's uh-huh. definitely these interesting like sections of the crypto world. And it's interesting. It's fascinating. And everyone's very passionate. And to the, sometimes the passion goes a little too far, um, but largely oh, yeah. very interesting. And everybody's been very cordial and nice. But sometimes they'll come like one guy, one guy in the XRP case. Somebody came and goes, don't listen to this idiot. He's been hawking this thing for 10 years. Or someone will come in. And if I tweet something positive about Bitcoin, sometimes someone will be like, if you're wrong, I'm going to dunk on your ass all day. And then I'm like, why? I'm just trying to give you the... And somebody will come in and go, oh, this guy is a big Bitcoin uh, bear. He's just bummed that, that this filing has good news. And I'm like, okay, I got it. So sometimes people will come in and explain why someone is like giving me a hard time. And I appreciate that. Yep. Oh, Eric, man, my heart goes out to you so much because I totally get it. From outsiders, it's so weird and off-putting and I I totally get it. Anyway, Eric, yeah. uh, uh, this has been a, a, a really fun conversation. I'm glad we got to wade into some of the, the weirdness of, of, of uh, crypto. And hey, you know what? I'm also pumped. Um, I appreciate you coming out to our conference in London. So I'll see you in person uh, in March, um, which will be a lot of fun. I am. Um, that looks good because I'm trying to parlay it with a conference we're having on ETFs at our office. So I think we're looking good though. Amazing. All right. That'll be a blast. Um, Yeah. And we'll have BlackRock and a bunch of the other uh, ETF issuers there as well. So it'll be good to hear from them uh, or prospective issuers, I should say. Uh, Yeah. We'll we'll have a lot more to talk about, I'm sure. You bet. You bet. Um, Eric, you put out, I just uh, showed you as one of my uh, favorite, we can even link it in the show notes. It's kind of timeless, uh, I think, commentary on the ETF industry. Uh, but you put out so much good content. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, the work that you do at Bloomberg, what's the best way uh, to get in touch or follow you? Assuming nobody has a terminal. Um, if you have Bloomberg terminal, B-I-E-T-F-Go is how to find all of our work and our tools and stuff like that. But if you want to get me for free, uh, Twitter, great. And obviously, um, I have a podcast called Trillions, which is on you know iTunes, everywhere you get podcasts, and a TV show called ETF IQ which you, if you Google ETF IQ, all the old shows are there if you mm. want to just watch them digitally, but they're on live Bloomberg TV every Monday at, I mean, sorry, every, sorry, every Monday at 1 p.m. Excellent. All right. Well, Eric, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on and giving us a download on the Bitcoin ETF and everything else. So You got it. Pleasure yeah. was mine. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks, Bye. Eric. Cheers. <laughs> 